Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to talk to Andrew Raycroft of Nesson, of course, Bruins analyst in just a little bit. We hit on a lot with Raycroft. We'll get into what a deep playoff run would mean for David Pasternak. He hasn't had that signature run yet. We'll also get into who he wants to see in each playoff round, going through the first round, the second round, and a possibility of getting into the conference finals. A very big possibility at this point with this Bruins team. How important Charlie Coyle could be to a cup run. I think he's kind of under the radar right now. And any chance we see sort of the goalie platoon carry itself over to the postseason. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's been a talking point here locally. We'll get into that with Razor and also just the ridiculous season that Bergeron has had because... Razor played with Bergeron when he was a rookie. So we'll get into all that. So you'll hear that in just a little bit. I also want to get into this now new drama surrounding the Patriots. They're reporting that the Patriots have been shopping around Mac Jones this offseason, or at least they previously had shopped him. So we'll get into that as well. But I do want to start with the C's after that wild game in Philadelphia, where just absolutely insane. The Celtics still had a chance to win at the end. Still had a chance to win at the end of the game. Somehow, I, I didn't really care for that play at the end. Tatum gets a tough shot in the corner. Smart flop there, which I don't really know why he was flopping there. It didn't really make sense to me. But nonetheless, we've seen smart flop over and over again. He did it at the end of the game. Also, I'd say this to the Tatum point is at the end of the game, the third three that P.J. Tucker hit in the corner. At that point, you're two passes away, right? Joel Embiid's got the ball sort of at the nail. Derek White is on the defender or is on Harden. So he's one pass away. So he's starting staying glued to Harden. If you look at the way that they were playing Embiid in this game, you really don't have to cheat off Tucker in the corner because Embiid's very comfortable taking those mid-range jump shots. I'll get into that in just a little bit here, but I don't know why Tatum came off Tucker there, especially considering he had hit two in a row. But the fact that they even got to the point where <laughs> it was only two points at the end of the game is kind of 
ridiculous to me. Just some of the wild stuff late, like the Embiid offensive foul on Grant Williams. I'm like, holy shit, are they really going to pull this off? Which it was a foul, by the way. It was just wild that, of course, it's going to be Grant or Smart that comes up with something like that, right? Like a wild play at the end of the game. But I just feel right now, still basically at the same spot I've been, I feel pretty comfortable about now this likely second round matchup against Joel Embiid in the 76ers, despite the Joel Embiid performance on Monday night, or I should say on Tuesday night. So I'll start with the why, and I'll get to a couple concerns from that game as well. But just in terms of why I'm comfortable with this matchup, the obvious is you lost by two points on the road when the guy on the other side was clearly trying to wrap up the MVP, and you don't have your second best player in Jalen Brown, who has been the Celtics' best player post-All-Star break, and you're without your most impactful defensive player. So you don't have those two guys in this game against the Philadelphia 76ers. And Joel Embiid went for 52 points, and the 76ers won by two points. Last time he went for 41, the Celtics won. He needed 52 to beat the Celtics tonight. So the Seas, by the way, one of the real strengths they have against Philadelphia One of the weaknesses of Philly, they're very bad in terms of their transition defense. The Celtics tonight, 15 fast break points to zero for Philadelphia. And the Celtics have crushed the 76ers in that matchup pretty much all season long. And they've been very good in transition. And they would have pushed the ball more if the second best player we talked about, Jalen Brown, was actually available for this game. And by the way, just to clear things up, Joe Mazzulla did say that he expects Jalen to play in the game against Toronto. But if you look at it in terms of the Celtics, and in particular with Philly, Philadelphia is allowing 15.6 fast break points per game, 27th in the NBA. 1.18 points per possession in transition, 26th in the NBA. They are really bad defending teams when they get out in the break. Well, it just so happens that Jalen Brown is one of the best transition players in the entire NBA, and he's averaging 6.2 fast break points per game post-All-Star break, which is number one in the NBA, and the Celtics didn't have that guy tonight. The Celtics had 25 fast break points in the last game they played against Philadelphia and the Pacers on the season lead the NBA. They're just over 18.1. The three previous matchups against Philly, the Celtics have been scoring over 18 points per game on the fast break and they didn't have Jalen Brown tonight. Okay, so this Philadelphia team, nothing's going to change like this is not going to change in the postseason. This is not a very athletic team, especially on the wing line. So that is another thing that the Celtics certainly can expose even more in a playoff series against Philadelphia. It's not like, okay, the game's just going to completely slow down. No, Philadelphia is not athletic. They're not a very athletic team. So the Celtics can certainly continue to expose that when they get to the postseason. The other thing is with this Philadelphia team, one of the things that we saw again tonight, and we've seen it throughout the games that these teams have matched up against each other, their point of attack defense is really soft. It is really bad. I mean, you look at the Celtics, they're shooting 55% on drives against Philly this year. And we told you when we referenced this against Milwaukee, Dallas is number one in the league at 54.8%. They have Luka. The Celtics shoot 55% against Philadelphia. Jalen entering tonight's game. Of course, he didn't play eight of 13 on drives against Philly, 61.5%. Derek White was eight of nine on drives entering tonight against Philly, 88.9%. And Brogdon, 10 of 17 for 58.8%. So those guys, all three of them, are finding it very easy to get to the basket, get into the lane against this Philadelphia team, and nothing's going to change between now and a potential playoff series. Every time Brogdon plays against Philly, every time White plays against Philly, 
they play really, really well. And there's a reason for that. It's And I'm not trying to discredit them, but Philadelphia's defense is really soft on the perimeter. They don't have like a lockdown defender that they can put on these guys. And especially when you're putting so much attention on the Jason Tatums of the world, how do you defend these guys, right? So that's another thing they can continue to expose when they get into a playoff series against these guys. And I just look at Derek White. He was the best player on the floor for the Celtics tonight. It started off the bat. He hit that top of the key three. Then he had a beautiful hit-ahead pass to Tatum, who found Grant for an easy layup. He had a nice bucket in transition where he just drove to the basket because Philly cannot defend drives, especially against the Celtics team. And then he had a typical Derek White play where on one end, after a Marcus Smart turnover, he contested a read play at the rim where he blocked that. He gets it back. He goes down the other end of the court. He finds Brogdon on a no-look pass. He then drew an offensive foul on Maxi. He had a nice drive and a floater over Reed where he just drove by Reed and then hit the floater. He hit a top of the key three. He went right by James Harden, who we all know is not a good defender to get to the basket easy for a layup. Had a big corner three in that fourth quarter to make it 84-81, which is a really nice play by Jason Tatum where basically they use Derek White as the screener and, or excuse me, Tatum as the screener and because Maxi was on White. So then what happens? Maxi gets switched on to Tatum at the nail so Tatum is backing down Maxi. Melton comes over to help. Once that happens, Tatum kicks it out to Derek White and he knocks down the catch and shoot three, which is something you can expose against this Philadelphia team because you can get easy mismatches for Tatum, which means shooters are going to be open, right? So on the night, White finishes nine of 18, four of 10 from deep, 26 points. So now against Philly this season, going back to my point where they don't have good matchups for the Celtics guards. Derek White against Philly this year is 25 of 43. That's 58.1%. Nine of 20 from deep, 45%. And he's a plus 40. Okay. How about Malcolm Brogdon? Well, he was really good in this game tonight as well. Early, right when he got into the game, get into the paint. Little floater makes it 16 to 16. He had a pull up three off the screen. He then was able to shake McDaniels and hit a mid-ranger. McDaniels was brought in for his defense. He has not been good defensively against the Celtics in these games we've seen. He had a hard drive and semi-transition to make it 72-71, and then he hit a nice corner three to make it 77-74 after there was overreaction to Jason Tatum. Okay, so tonight he finishes with 18, he's 7-16, 2-4, plus 3 in the game. So now, in the season series against Philly, 58 points, we gave you the drive numbers, 23-45, of 51.1%, he's shooting 50% on threes, and he's a plus 40. So Brogdon and White are each plus 40 against this Philadelphia team. And that is a thing. The Philly point of attack defense is not good. We've told you. So these guys, especially Brogdon, he wants to get downhill. And the other thing is just the depth of this team, right? Like you would consider Brogdon and White to be depth scoring when you have Jason Tatum and you have Jalen Brown available, or at least one of the two, you'd say that's depth scoring, right? So my whole point with that is Philadelphia in this game had just 10 bench points. Doc clearly does not trust McDaniels, and we as Celtics fans all know when Doc doesn't trust a guy, he's not going to play him. This guy, they got at the trading deadline for his defense. He played 15 minutes in this game. Philly's bench on the season is 23rd in scoring at 31.6, and now with Maxi in that starting lineup, they have no punch off the bench whatsoever, and Maxi, this is another reason I feel good about this matchup, Maxi's bad against the Celtics. They go at him, as I alluded to on that play with Tatum and Derek White, they go at him defensively. And secondarily, he cannot score against the Celtics. So just looking at the depth scoring, so to speak, for this Philly team, 
Tobias Harris is not good as a third scorer. He's just not a very good third option. I mean, the guy was missing dunks tonight. He's just not a great player. I mean, he's way overpaid. Everybody knows that. I mean, at one point on the broadcast, Scal said a lot of people compare him to Chris Middleton. Who the fuck compares him to Chris Middleton? Chris Middleton is an NBA champion. This guy is a real reason that that Milwaukee Bucks team got over the hump. He was great in that Brooklyn series. I don't know anybody that compares Tobias Harris to Chris Middleton. I don't know what the hell Scal was talking about right there. I have no idea what he was talking about. But anyway, he was bad. Tobias Harris was. And Maxi went for five points on two of eight shooting. So now you look at it in terms of Maxi. He's got 40 total points in... The four games against the Celtics, he's shooting 35.4% from the field, 17 of 48, and 21.4% from deep. So he's averaging 10 points a game, 40 total points. He's giving them nothing in terms of uh, as an offensive punch. He doesn't really have a guy that he can go at defensively. The Celtics have too many good defenders. So that's another reason that I like this matchup is I don't believe Philadelphia is going to find enough scoring outside of Embiid and Harden. But that brings me to something I didn't like in this final matchup against the 76ers. I told you Brogdon and White have been really good against this team. And White played 40 minutes, 10 more than Marcus Smart, but Brogdon played two minutes less than Smart, and Brogdon did not come back into the game after checking out at the seven-minute mark. Although I will say this, he did not come back into like the real action. He came back in for that final play, but other than that, those final seven minutes of the game, Brogdon's on the bench. And Smart, in the finale against Philly, if you will, two of seven from deep, And in that third quarter, he hurt the offense, right? He had three wide open threes where Jason Tatum found him for wide open threes. That's the right basketball play for Tatum. And Marcus Smart is going to be able to knock those downs. And he didn't tonight in that game. He had a bad foul on Embiid late and it was an and one. So Embiid makes it 89 to 88. The next play down the floor offensively, Smart gets an offensive foul for no reason where he just swipes hard and it was just a perplexing foul from Smart. So it was just not smart plays from him down the stretch of this game. And here's the thing about this Philly team, as I was mentioning, you don't really need his defense in this potential series. White can handle Maxie. Everybody can handle Maxie on the Celtics team. And Brogdon is plenty good enough defensively to cover Harden at this stage of his career, right? Harden's not a guy that blows by you anymore, right? He does it with craft. He does it with sort of his strength. And Brogdon is really good when he has to match up against strength. Brogdon's not good against speedy guys, but against a guy like Harden, he can certainly match up. And now you look at Smart, who did miss one of the Philadelphia games. He's now 14 of 34, 41.2%, 5 of 17, 29.4% from three, and he's a minus 23. Reminder, Brogdon, 51.1%, 50% from the field, plus 40 in terms of the plus minus. Smart's at minus 23. White, 58.1%, 45% from deep, a plus 40 So these guys are just better in a potential matchup against Philadelphia. There are going to be matchups where Smart makes more sense and his defense is needed more. But in this matchup against Philadelphia, Brogdon is better against that team. So that's why I just hope that what we saw from Joe Mazzulla in that game does not repeat itself in the postseason. There was no reason that Marcus Smart should have been closing out that game. That should have been Brogdon's time to shine there because of how well he plays against this team. And I did feel like there were times in those final seven minutes where the offense kind of got stale. And that's when, okay, it'd be great if Jalen was on the court, but I would have liked to see Brogdon on the court because we know he can basically get into the lane against this team whenever he wanted to. And for some reason, Smart's on the court at the end of the game. So I hated that from the perspective of Joe Mazzulla. I did not like that decision whatsoever. 
As for Tatum, this is now back-to-back games without 20 against Philly. He did hit the buzzer beater in the matchup, what, on the 25th of February, I believe that was. But he didn't shoot the ball well, but he did have the six assists. And I felt like the strategy that Philadelphia had, Tatum made some nice plays in it where they were just trying to blitz him and get the ball out of his hand. So I do think that he made a lot of nice decisions and he really should have had 10 or 11 assists in this game. Guys were missing wide open threes. Even Al Horford missed a couple in the second half. But I thought he had some really nice plays like early on, drove past Harden, defense collapses, finds Al for a wide open three. Okay, then he's been really good moving off the ball where he passes to Grant, then he cuts and he gets a layup. And then I thought that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he gets Embiid isoed. Tucker cheats off his defense, the guy he's defending, who's Al, right? So he's trying to help Embiid because he feels like Tatum's going to go by him. And then he's able to find Al for a wide open three. And then the play I alluded to, Tatum gets blitzed, finds Al on a short roll, and then Smart gets a layup. The same thing happened like three times in this game. He did the same thing with Derek White on one play as well. So I thought all in all, Tatum, yeah, he missed a couple of shots that he ordinarily should make. Like he missed some open threes, but I thought the decision-making from Tatum was pretty good in this game. Although I didn't like the last shot. I don't put that on him. I put that more on, I don't know why Smart's falling over and secondarily, I didn't like the construction they'll play from the the beginning with Joe Mazzullo. But nonetheless, I thought Tatum was fine in this game. I'm not worried about the points in this game. I thought he made a lot of great basketball plays. And the other thing I'd say is this, like when you make these decisions to blitz Jason Tatum when he has the ball at the top of the key, right? Whoever's setting the screen, if they want to blitz Tatum, it becomes a lot more difficult to do that when Jalen Brown's on the court because he's going to be on a wing. And when you give him the ball with a defender closing out of him, you're in trouble. Like it's over for you defensively. So I'm not going to overreact to Tatum having a bad shooting night against this Philly team. All right. So let's get to the whole Embiid thing. I thought it was odd. They had Grant on Embiid to start the game and had him. It felt like and the tracking data will come out in the morning, but it felt like they had Grant on Embiid more than Horford. And then eventually they went to a lot of Blake in the second half and Blake was actually okay. I mean, for what you would expect from Blake Griffin. But anyway, when they get into a postseason series, they're going to have time to sort of come up with, hey, when do we want to double Joel Embiid? When do we not want to double? And you would expect the reason we didn't see a lot of Al on Embiid in this matchup is they're saving that for the postseason in terms of, okay, Grant, you sort of eat up the innings in this final regular season game against Philadelphia. You take the punishment because Al's going to have to do it in the postseason. And that's a lot to ask of a guy at this particular point in time that's what in his 36-year-old season. So Al kind of started on, or didn't kind of, he started on P.J. Tucker, but it was kind of in that Rob role where he was sort of the help defender. And you would expect once you get into a postseason series against this team, you'll have essentially Rob Williams on Tucker in that Rover helper role. And then you'll have Al Horford on Joel Embiid. So that's what I think will happen for the postseason because you can't really match up Grant with him. There Really, there's no real answer when you're putting Grant Williams on Joel Embiid. He can handle Giannis, but the reason that he can't handle Embiid is Embiid is much more comfortable in the mid-range, in the mid-range game, right? Giannis wants to get downhill. He wants to get to the basket. Embiid can do that, but he's very comfortable shooting short mid-rangers and long mid-rangers. And if you look at it in this game, Embiid finishes with 52-20 of 25 shootings. They were not bothering him at all in terms of those shots. And if you look at Embiid, I mean, he had 24 and 10 in the first half, and he just, he completely went off. So here's the interesting component in terms of how the Celtics defend Joel Embiid. So throughout the regular season, he averages 5.3 short mid-range attempts per game, okay? And against the Celtics, the previous three matchups, that number is at... 4.5 
4.3. So it actually goes down by an attempt. If you look at the long mid-rangers, 5.3 a game throughout the season against the Celtics, that number actually goes up to 8. And the percentage goes from 48.2% to 45.8%. So they're sort of playing the math there. Keep taking the long mid-rangers, right? Not the short mid-rangers. And then if you look at the attempts in the restricted area of the season, so at the rim, 6.4 a game throughout the season, 74.3%. And against the Celtics, that number had actually gone down to 4.3. So they'd done a much better job in terms of almost, I mean, if you think about it, it's more than what, two attempts per game in the restricted area down from where he's ordinarily. So those numbers, they seem better, like in terms of the shot profile for Joel Embiid. But here was the problem in this final matchup. They let him get seven shots in the restricted area, hit all seven of those. They let him get 10 shots in the short mid-range, so up 4.7 in terms of what you've been holding him to, and he hit 70% of those. And then the long mid-ragers, he took seven, so actually down an attempt from what the Celtics were holding him to. They, Or I should say, yeah, down an attempt. The Celtics were having him take eight, so he took one less, and he hit all but one of those. So he took more shots at the basket than he ordinarily does against the Celtics, and he took more short mid-range jumpers than he ordinarily takes against the Celtics. So what that results in is 28 points in the paint for Joel Embiid. It was just too easy for him. And remember, he was just in this game shooting over Grant Williams. Grant Williams is six foot six. Joel Embiid is a seven footer. At least if Al's on him, that's a guy that's six foot nine, even to a lesser extent, a guy like Blake Griffin. But I think the good news is, What we're seeing is Joe Mazzulla is trying to figure out, okay, would this potentially work in a postseason series? And clearly it wouldn't. I'm fine. Grant's really good on Giannis Antetokounmpo. I just don't look at Grant Williams as a guy that can defend Joel Embiid just because he has such a nice touch from both the short mid-range and the long mid-range. And I know that a lot of people look at the mid-range game and they say that's an inefficient shot. Well, I don't want Joel Embiid taking those shots. I'd much rather him take, obviously you'd like Joel Embiid to take above the break threes, but it's way too easy to let a guy that is that good and has been that good percentage-wise all season long from both the short mid-range and the long mid-range to live in that area. And part of the reason that it was so easy and so comfortable with him in the game against the Celtics in the final game is Grant Williams is on him the most of the game. I mean, he's it's easy. You're not challenging the shot. It's like putting a short defender on Durant. You're not challenging the shot. Like, remember when Durant... Years ago when he was on Golden State, they put Drew Holiday on him. And Drew Holiday is an outstanding defender, but the problem is he's too short for Durant. So Durant could just shoot over him. Grant Williams, it's not an indictment on Grant. You're just too small to cover Joel Embiid. So hopefully that could change in the postseason. And the other thing is just getting back to one of the things you feel comfortable about is Robert Williams coming back at a playoff series against Philly where he only played in one of the Philadelphia games. He went 7 of 7, 14 points, 8 boards, 3 offensive rebounds. He had a block in just 25 minutes. So that is basically... One of, if not the best help defenders in the entire NBA. We all know he can clean up basically every mess you have. And Joel Embiid didn't really have to think about him except in one matchup against the Celtics team. So overall, just to put a sort of a bow on the Celtics 76ers second round matchup that we're all likely going to see, I feel fine about the matchup. Embiid's going to be tough to guard. I mean, this guy's going to win the MVP, the NBA in all likelihood for a reason. One thing you can do, you can turn them over. 14 turnovers in these four games. That's a lot for a big man. And you can even come up with more ways to confuse him when you actually have Rob out there and you can do a lot of things in terms of show help and then don't help. Like there's ways to turn him over. And I don't expect that Grant Williams is going to be the guy, like the primary defender for large stretches like he was in the final game. Harden, he hit three threes early in this one. 
and then he hit one after that, and they were all the step back variety. He's not really, as I alluded to, going by people at this stage. Maxi sucks against the Celtics. Harris is just not that good of a player unless you ask Scal. And basically, your best transition player, your best athlete, your second best player overall, Jalen Brown didn't play in the final game against Philadelphia. You lost by two. You also didn't have Rob. So I feel very, very comfortable about this matchup. Now, one other Celtics note I wanted to get to. Jalen did another interview, this one with Shams. And here's what he had to say. He's talking about him and Tatum. I get to see him come into work every single day and I see him prepare for winning. I've seen him get better every single year. I've seen him grow as a man. He's seen me grow as a man. And I get why, I guess in a sense, people always try to break up duos or people like that because so far we've been incredibly successful and hopefully we can be even more successful. The only thing that would put the ribbon on top is getting a championship. He goes on to say, there's a phrase that I say, Want for your brother what you want for yourself. That's the only way I understand how to operate. Want for people around me what I want for myself. By Jason being the ultimate version of him, it doesn't stop me from being the ultimate version of myself. At this point, we're paired to each other. At this point, we're part of each other's destiny. Okay, so I feel like he summed it up well, the relationship with him and Jason Tatum. And I did feel like, okay, this is a good thing that he did this final sit down where he could sort of address basically everything that's been going on in terms of these sit downs he's been doing with the Times, with the story that Logan had from the ringer as well. I feel like this is good for Jalen, but I hope this is just like the end of it. They we're not going to be talking about it in the postseason, right? Because I do feel like Jalen looked at it and said, okay, maybe this is getting to be a little distracting all these interviews that he's been doing. So I do think this is a good thing, right? Where we're probably going to find out soon that Jalen's an all-NBA player. The Celtics are able to offer him the Supermax, and all will be well. So I'm happy he did this final sort of sit-down before the postseason because he didn't really want this to happen in the postseason, and it did feel like this one, Jalen, it seems like, okay, Jalen wants to be here. He wants to play with Jason Tatum, which from a Celtics fan's perspective, you feel optimistic about that going forward. That's a good thing. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right. I did want to get to the Patriots because we have more drama surrounding the team and in particular the quarterback, Mac Jones. So on Tuesday, a report from Mike Florio, per source with knowledge of the situation, Belichick has shopped Jones to multiple teams during the 2023 offseason. The full list of potential destinations isn't known. The teams mentioned as potential destinations were the Raiders, the Texans, the Buccaneers, and the Commanders. Okay. So Mark Daniels from Mass Live then had this. One NFL source said they hadn't heard anything about the Patriots shopping Jones to any team this offseason, adding that's news to me. A second NFL source from Daniels' article said the Patriots haven't contacted the Buccaneers about Jones, saying his name, quote, has never come up this offseason. A third NFL source said the Patriots have not contacted the Raiders about a trade involving Jones either. Okay. So maybe the Patriots didn't shop Mac Jones this offseason. Like you have the scoop here from Mark Daniels. It is really dialed in reporter. But would it really be crazy if the Patriots did shop Mac Jones? Everyone would buy that, right? How could you not with everything that has transpired with the relationship of the quarterback and the organization? I just feel like what we're seeing right now 
is a marriage that seems incredibly damaged and a marriage that seems like it's heading towards divorce. So let's start with this. I could clearly see Bill doing this, okay? We know that he has soured on Mac. We know that he was upset with some of the outbursts on the field. And we know Bill was upset with Mac seeking outside counsel, so to speak. And what I mean by that is, remember, Chris Sims had the report that Mac called members of the Alabama coaching staff for help on how to run the Patriots' new offense, according to Chris Sims. Tommy Kern followed up on that and said Belichick was reportedly infuriated with that. And remember, like... If you're calling Alabama, Nick Saban's the coach. He's going to tell Bill. Like, even if you're not talking directly to Nick, somebody's going to tell Nick Saban and it's going to get back to Belichick. But anyway, remember, it's just interesting sort of the timeline with Bill and Mac. So if you go back to last offseason, this is what Bill said about Mac. I think Mac has done a great job. He's worked extremely hard. He's got a tremendous work ethic in all areas. I think there's a dramatic improvement. His physical work and conditioning, working on his mechanics, working on his footwork, working on his understanding of our offense, of the opponent's defense, the situations, all those things. So he was praising Mac like crazy last offseason. What did he say at the owners' meetings last week when he was asked about a potential quarterback competition between Bailey Zappi and Mac Jones? We'll play the best player. Now, he did say that this goes for every position, but he said, we'll play the best player. This is the same guy that was praising Mac Jones up and down last offseason, okay? He said, everybody will get a chance to play. We'll play the best player. But he didn't commit to Mac or he didn't praise Mac like he did less than a year ago. He sounds totally different than the guy that we heard talking about his quarterback as his quarterback was getting ready for year two. He seemed over the moon in love with Mac. And this was sort of, it felt like, oh, Bill found his ticket to be relevant without Tom Brady, right? And we haven't heard from that Bill Belichick in a while, right? So we also know that Bill was noncommittal at times to Mac during the season. Bill had Mac play, what, just three series against the Bears on Monday Night Football, yanked him, and then later on that week, he wouldn't commit to Mac for the next game. He said, that's a hypothetical question. Let's see where that is and what that is. Remember, they referenced the injury for why Mac only played in three series, and Then later on in the week when Bill said Mac is the starter, it was, hey, we were just making sure the injury was all right. But Bill could have very easily just said, hey, if Mac's healthy, he's our quarterback. But it just felt like if Bill could upgrade the position and part of the way he could do that is trading Mac Jones this offseason, don't you think that that's something that Bill would explore? So this whole idea certainly does not seem far-fetched whatsoever from the reporting from Florio. And the other component is a team... (laughs) If a team came with a ridiculous price for Mac, Bill would pull the trigger, right? If some team just overvalued Mac Jones and said, hey, we'll give up a top 10 pick for Mac Jones, Bill would do it, right? So if anything, Bill was probably trying to rip off a team this offseason. But I can imagine if you look across the league, no team was going to do that, right? Mac, and we know the situation was a complete shit show here with Patricia and with Joe Judge, but Mac himself took a step back. He was really bad for large stretches last season. So why would a team pay a premium for Mac? You would have to be crazy, right? Because this isn't like a guy where you can sell yourself on the upside and say, oh, he's got a great arm or he's a tremendous athlete. We can get him in our building and we can season him. He's going to look a lot better, right? At the high end level, you're looking at like a decent quarterback, right? Even if you believe in Mac, the upside is not there where the rest of the league would look at and say, hey, that guy's worth a top 10 quarterback. So I don't see the Patriots making this move at this point. But another thing is Bill acknowledged that 
he fucked up last year, right? And we know Bill fucked up because he moved on from Patricia. He moved on from Judge's sort of the brain trust. I can't believe I'm using that word with those two guys. Like they were the brain trust offensively and they bring in Bill O'Brien. So even if that move to bring in Bill O'Brien wasn't solely made for Mac, it has to be a component of the decision. Mac taught him the playbook or at least worked with him in terms of the playbook when Bill O'Brien first got to Alabama and he can run similar things with Mac that he ran when he was at Alabama, right? So now that's part of why they hired Bill O'Brien, but I don't think it's solely the reason. Like if Bill could have, Bill Belichick, that is, got a great deal for Mac, he would have done it. Now, the other interesting component to all this is the owner. And this is what Kraft said about Mac at the owner's meetings. I'm a big fan of Mac. I think we experimented with some things last year, and frankly, they didn't work when it came to him, in my opinion. I think we've made changes that put him in a good position to excel. So first, basically, Robert Kraft, let me blame Bill and point the finger at Bill, right? We all know Bill screwed up. As we've alluded to, he admitted that, and Kraft wanted to make sure that was on the record. I think we experimented with some things last year, and they didn't work. Okay, and we've seen Kraft point the finger before with Bill recently, but also with Tom, right? When Tom announced that he was leaving the Patriots, Robert Kraft called up Stephen A. Smith on first take, and Stephen A. Smith said on the air that Kraft told him that Brady, if he wanted to stay in New England, they would have worked it out, but Tom Brady wanted to leave. That's what Robert Kraft told Stephen A. Smith. So yes, was that technically true? Yeah, but why? Well, they forced Tom to leave by disrespecting him, right? And even though, as Robert keeps saying, Bill's in charge of the football team, Robert is his boss. And if Robert makes it abundantly clear, hey, you know what, guys? Or you know what, Bill, you're keeping Tom Brady around. You're giving him the contract he wants. Well, guess what? Tom Brady would have been around, right? So Robert could have easily intervened and said, Bill, give him the Drew Brees deal. And remember in 2018, they gave Tom the incentive-laden deal. Top five in passing yards, passer rating, completion percentage, touchdowns, and yards per attempt. He gets an extra $5 million if he hits those. And he didn't hit any. And those were listed as likely bonuses in the contract. And they took away Brandon Cooks. Like when Brady won the MVP in 17, he had Cooks who had over 1,000 yards receiving. He wasn't going to hit those incentives, right? Even we remember at the end of that season, they went to a run-heavy offense. So they make him sing for his supper in 18 with the incentives when he won the MVP the previous season. And then after he throws for 500, or and by the way, 500 yards in the Super Bowl, but then the next year, they just give him a bump in 2019 and they give him the void year. So they wouldn't give him a long-term extension. So when Kraft told Stephen A. Smith, technically he was telling the truth that Tom could have been here, but he was twisting the truth. Yeah, Tom could have been here if he wanted to play for below market value, right? So just like Robert blamed Tom for leaving, he's blaming Bill for last year, okay? And everyone in the media and most of the fans, we thought that the Patricia and the judge situation was going to be a failure. What did Robert say, though? I think Bill is a unique way of doing things. It's worked out pretty well up to now. I know what I don't know, and I try to stay out of the way of things I don't know. I think he's pretty good. Over 40 years of experience of doing it. It doesn't sometimes look like a straight line to our fans or myself, but I'm results-oriented. So, Robert supported Bill last offseason when he made the move to have Patricia and Joe Judge be in charge of the offense, even though everyone else thought Bill's judgment was clouded and he was just keeping his friends around, right? But Robert is now covering himself saying, hey, Bill screwed up last year, right? It didn't work out. Bill screwed up. 
It's not my fault, it's Bill's. So that is one part of it in terms of the whole Robert Kraft dynamic with Belichick now. And Robert is now routinely sending shots Bill's way, which is another interesting development in terms of the relationship with Robert and Bill compared to the whole Max situation, who is now in the middle of all this, right? But what else did Robert do the same day that he praised Mac Jones at the owners' meetings? He dropped a Lamar nugget. He tells reporters at the owners' meetings that Meek Mill, his buddy, texted him saying Lamar Jackson wanted to come to New England. Kraft said it was Bill Belichick's decision, though. That's what he apparently told Meek Mill. That's what he told reporters. So one moment, Robert Kraft is praising Mac Jones and blaming Bill. In the next moment, he's saying, hey, my friend Meek Mill says we can get Lamar Jackson here. How do you think that makes the quarterback feel? Aren't the previous comments where he praised Mac just hollow if the same time at the owners meetings, he tells you that Lamar Jackson wants to come here. So let's just look at this whole thing from Mac's position, right? The fact that he was out there and this sort of situation is now leaking to Florio. Could it possibly be coming from Mac's camp, right? First of all, the report is from, from Florio, who we know works with Chris Sims. Chris Sims had the previous report that Mac was calling up people in terms of with Alabama, where he's complaining about the Patriots offense and trying to get help and how to fix it, right? That report clearly embarrassed Bill Belichick. And you totally understand why, right? It makes Bill look incompetent. And in defense of Mac, what Bill did last year was a demonstration of incompetence. We know the reporting from the Herald. The offensive coaching staff didn't have answers when the players were saying, hey, what happens if the defense does that? No, we'll just get to that later, guys. Don't worry about that. And the quarterback was seeking outside help. That is such a bad look for the organization. And maybe that's where this really started to sour, not just the outburst that we saw in the field from Mac Jones, but also that as well. But if you're Mac, would a fresh start be the worst thing? I would not be surprised if Mac wanted a trade for several reasons. So there is the obvious, the Monday night football debacle that we mentioned. And Devin McCourty said uh, recently on WEI that some of the guys in the locker room wanted Mac to be the quarterback. Some wanted Zappi. So Bill created at least somewhat of a divide in the locker room. You had guys that loved Mac and guys that loved Zappi. So speaking of sort of that whole situation, how about the fan stuff, right? And maybe this doesn't matter to you guys, but Mac was booed on Monday Night Football in front of his home crowd that was chanting for his backup, Bailey Zappi. And that, for a quarterback that had just taken this team to the playoffs in the previous season, no matter what you think of Mac, he must have felt it insulted and that his coach put him in this position. And now the owner is talking about Lamar Jackson. So again, the fan base, there's a portion of the fan base that wants Lamar Jackson. I'm not saying the entire fan base, a lot of... You and the fan base really still like Mac Jones. Now, I'm in the camp that I would like Lamar Jackson, but I also look at the fact that this is a player in Mac Jones that is like, wait, hold on. Now the fans want a different quarterback, not me. But how about last week, right? When you think about it from this perspective, you had Asante Samuel, who we know does not like Bill Belichick. He tweeted out that, trust me, you don't want to play for Belichick when he was talking about Lamar Jackson. He tweeted this to Lamar Jackson. And Matthew Judon comes back and he says, quote, hush up. It's different over here. That's what Matthew Judon said back to Asante Samuel. And they went back and forth for a little bit on social media. I'm sure a lot of you saw it. But even if Judon thinks that he's sticking up for the organization and more importantly, maybe sticking up for Belichick, 
he's reacting to a tweet about getting a guy to replace Mac Jones, right? So this is after we knew there was an issue from Devin McCourty, where last year guys were talking about wanting Zappy. And now you have this whole situation where Matthew Judon is talking about, yeah, it's different here. And at least in some ways, it looks like he's recruiting Lamar Jackson on social media, right? So to review, just the headlines. The coach on multiple occasions over the last year will not commit to Mac. The owner said another quarterback wants to come here. And at least some of his teammates preferred another quarterback. And the fan base has soured on Mac. At least some portions of the fan base, not all of you, but some portions have soured on Mac. So those are the juicy parts. How about the less headline-grabbing things, if you will? We've talked about the malpractice of having Patricia on the offense. But also, how about the fact that we knew part of the issue the Pats had with Mac were the interceptions, right? Belichick hates interceptions. Well, they brought in Devontae Parker, who over the past four years now averages the least amount of separation per target. So they wanted Mac part of the plan last year. They wanted him to push the ball down the field more. And even Matt Patricia referenced it. They thought he threw a really nice deep ball. They wanted him to push the ball down the field more. And they brought in a guy that's a contested catch guy in Devontae Parker. So early on, Mac was throwing a bunch of interceptions. For his first four, he was targeting Devontae Parker. And this is something they outlined that they wanted to do. They wanted Mac to push the ball down the field more. And it's not like you went out and you got him a burner. You got him a guy in Devontae Parker that has to win jump balls, right? So Mac's like, wait, I thought you want me to take these shots. There's going to be some interceptions if you want me to do that. So that's just a one tiny thing from my observation. But also, we outlined last season, like the scheme in general, he was 39th of 41 quarterbacks in play action drop rate, drop back rate, I should say. And if you go back to his days at Alabama, he was 73 of 78 on RPOs, okay? 10 touchdowns, no interceptions in his final season there. He attempted 19 passes out of RPOs last season. So the stuff that he was good at, you didn't use. And then there's this whole problem with the weapons, right? So I believe Juju can be an upgrade over Jacoby Myers. We've outlined that just because of the after the catch ability, but not like a massive upgrade. But what we know about Mac is he really loved playing with Jacoby Myers. He said, Jacoby's one of the best, if not the best teammates I've ever had. He's a great person. He comes to work every day, doesn't complain, does everything right, and he serves everything that's coming his way. He deserves everything that's coming his way, I should say. So hopefully it's with us. This is before, of course, he signed with the Raiders. So Jacoby was the one guy that Mac had a really good on-field chemistry with. 150 receptions over the past two seasons. The next closest was Hunter Henry with 91. So 59 less. And then he looks across. So first of all, the guy, the one guy that he had a good thing going with on the field, he's now gone. And we can argue about the Juju versus Jacoby thing, but Mac Jones has played well with Jacoby like we saw it. And now from Mac's perspective, he's like, wait, hold on. The one guy that really worked here, you, you got rid of that guy? Like that's going to irritate him. And then he looks across the league and he sees the two guys that he played at college with. The Dolphins went out and they got Tua, Tyree Kill, and the Eagles went out and they got Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown. So his teammates at Alabama get elite weapons and they can take jumps in terms of where they stand in the NFL. Mac doesn't get that at all. He may get a little improvement from Juju from Jacoby Myers, right? Maybe a little bit of a bump, but nothing like getting A.J. Brown or Tyree Kill. So the Pats over the past year, they've really put on a masterclass on how to fuck up with your young quarterback. So if you add all this up, the coach may not want you and will not commit to you. The coach screwed up the offensive scheme for a year. The coach embarrassed you in front of the home crowd. 
Some of your teammates wanted your backup to be the starter. You have a bottom 10 weapon group of the NFL. You still don't have a number one receiver. The fan base has chanted for your backup. A portion of the fan base wants to replace you with Lamar because the owner mentioned it. Okay. And no one thought that was a possibility before Kraft mentioned it. Like, I was like, that'd be great if they could get Lamar. Nobody thought it was a possibility. And then Kraft threw that thing out there, right? So coming full circle with this thing about the report getting out there. Couldn't this be Max Camp putting it out there that it's just another way that the Patriots have treated Mac poorly, that they were shopping him around this offseason? It doesn't help Bill to put this out there. It makes him look incompetent that he couldn't get a deal done because Bill himself shares a large portion of the responsibility of why the value on Mac Jones is down. Like part of the reason Mac's value is really down compared to where it would have been last year is because Bill put him in a bad position last year. And it would only make Kraft look worse after saying he loves Mac and thinks Bill O'Brien can make it work. It would only make him look worse. Mac could be angry. And if his representatives got wind of this, that they found out, hey, the Patriots are shopping our client around, they may just be pissed and they may be at the point where they were thinking to themselves, okay, look at this. We don't like what the owner's saying. We don't like the personnel. We don't think the coaching staff trusts him anymore. Mac's getting screwed here. So all this really, what we're pointing at here with this newest report from Mike Florio. So this all sounds like a marriage that is heading towards diverse. It's just not a good situation right now for the quarterback of the Patriots. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll get into the bees with Andrew Raycroft coming up next. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from Nesson, it is Andrew Raycroft as we get closer to the postseason. Razor, what's going on, man? You done with the grind? You ready for the playoffs now? I'm ready for the playoffs. Absolutely. Uh, the weather's good, as you can see, sitting outside, actually enjoying some, you know, it, it feels like spring, which which we all know feels like playoff hockey weather. All right. So I want to start with Patrice Bergeron, because, of course, he missed the last two games after taking that cross check from Lane Peterson in the air, got the five stitches. It was cool to see Trent Frederick knock him out with one punch. <laughs> that, that was pretty awesome to see. You don't ordinarily see a fight end that quickly, but so he gets a whole week in between games, which is obviously a good thing. And you look at it, he's going to win another Selkie, which will be a six, already a record that he already has. But the one thing that sticks out to me, I was going through some of these numbers the other day, Razor, with him on the ice five on five, just 18 goals against, best of any forward with at least 800 minutes on five on five. The Bees have outscored their opponents 45 to 18, a 27 goal difference. He's the only player with a goals four percentage over 71% this season on five on five time. Most faceoffs won, best percentage in terms of any of the high usage guys. He's 37 and he's still doing this. And Razor, you played with him when he was a rookie. Like, was there anything then when you first saw him that jumped out to you said that this guy could be special? Obviously, you didn't think he could have the career that he had, but was there anything from day one that you noticed with him where you said, okay, this guy could be really, really good? Well, it was his professionalism and his ability to learn and and want to learn and how fast he picked everything up as an 18 year old. That's what stood out. I was 
just a few, you know, 23 or 24. I think he's an 85 birthday. I think he's uh, so, um, but it was what all the other pros. So I didn't really know it as much as what the Marty LaPointe's and, and the Felix Potvins and the guys that had been around a long time at that, at that juncture. And we're talking and, and me just kind of tagging along and listening, just how impressed they were with how quickly he picked everything up and how fast of a learner he was and, and how willing he was to learn at, at 18. And uh, we've seen that all the way through and you go through all those analytics and, uh, it, the, the proof is there. The eye test has been passed for a long time and he, he is one of the best and he, he takes a lot of pride in that. His competitiveness is, is off the charts as well. That was always there too. Yeah. And obviously we know how much the players in the dressing room appreciate him and the coaching staff and really players around the NHL as well, but just how impactful he is on both sides of the ice, even at this age, you think about some of the guys like from his era that, are, of course, talked about a ton. I mean, Ovechkin, for great reason, right? He's got the second most goals of all time. You think about Crosby, he's got the three cups. Even Patrick Kane, he's got the three cups. He's got a Con Smythe and a Rocket Richard. So you start to add that up, and it seems like, you know, those are the guys that get a lot of attention for that era. Not that they shouldn't get it, but what do you think another cup would be for Bergeron? Do you think he'd get appreciated even more than... Now, locally, he gets appreciated, but do you think he'd get appreciated more? Because he's never going to have the gaudy numbers, the point numbers that these other guys have. No. I, so I think, I mean, you can never have enough cups. Uh, that that always <laughs> will will separate you. And sure, that puts him, you know, that'll be the, the Bob Gainey numbers always going to be there with him. And the cups that Bob Gainey won will will be the the, the one thing against Patrice. But uh, two will make it sweeter. Two two changes things similar to the Super Bowls. Lots of guys win one. The guys who win two are, are automatic yeah. Hall of Famers. Uh, so I I think I don't know if it does as much for Patrice as it would for a Marshawn as it would for Krejci. That really separates those guys more. I think Patrice is in a position now like Ovechkin and Crosby where they're very solidified in what they are to the. I, at some point they're going to change the trophy to Patrice Bergeron trophy, right? Like yeah, that, that's, as, that's as kind of big <laughs> as it gets. And whether he wins a cup or not this year, I don't, uh, I don't see that changing, but, but you know, it's important. And, and, and I think locally it might be more important locally now that you say it, than it is throughout the whole league and, and nationally. And in Canada, I think, um, I think people here would make a bigger deal about Patrice winning too than anywhere else. I think you may be right on that, right? Because you think about it, it's sort of he's been the Bruins guy and obviously had Char for so long, too. But you think about it, Ortiz is the Patriots guy. Pierce was the Celtics guy. Brady, of course, is on a different level than all these guys. But he has kind of been the steady presence. And mm -hmm. this organization, there hasn't been many craters. And a large part of that has to go to Patrice Bergeron because he's done it with multiple different coaches now. And you say, well, you say, say Char, and I just think, too, now, now that I say it even more so is you need to have, I, I think we all deserve the image of Patrice getting the cup from the commissioner yeah. and, and a, even more of a high in the sky fantasy land is on home ice in the garden. Patrice Bergeron standing there lifting the cup from the commissioner as the first player, like the Chara picture we have in our minds when he got it, having that be Patrice Bergeron would uh, would put him on that Ortiz. I mean, Brady's tough, but Ortiz and Brady, that's what that's what this does for Patrice. 
Yeah, and then you look at, of course, Pasternak, who he gets the extension, which you told me last time we had you on, don't worry about it. It's eventually going to happen. It has happened since the last time we spoke, and everybody here locally is happy about it. It's kind of like the Devers thing, right? Like you signed him up for the prime of his career, so it's awesome from a fan's perspective. But then you look at the fact that career highs across the board, he's shattering all his previous records. And you look back, probably his best season prior to this was his 23-year-old season a couple years ago, and he's still only 26. So obviously he's been way more consistent this year than he's been in previous seasons. But is there something that jumps out to you where he's been significantly better in one area that in previous years? Or is it just this is the trajectory he was on? Like he's still right now, he's like just entering his prime. It is a little bit trajectory based, but I think we've seen him leadership wise. I think we've seen him take control of this team like this past weekend. Bergeron's not in the lineup. He gets a hat trick the first game, scores the next game. (laughs) Uh, Carolina, they go up there. He scores his 50th and 51st of the season without Bergeron and Marshawn in the lineup. Uh, Game in Seattle. They go out to Seattle earlier in the season, and it's a tough game. You're flying all the way out there, and and he was the one who carried the team. He was the one going in on the forecheck and and laying body and, and really being the one to to take the take the reins. And I we've seen that more than ever this season. And whether that's with David Krejci coming back, a little bit of support there. But I think we've seen him deserve that eight-year contract because of the leader he's going to be along with Charlie McAvoy in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, and maybe the answer to the question I asked earlier about what a, another cup run would mean for Bergeron, just a cup run for Pasternak, right? Because if you look at him... He hasn't really had that breakout postseason, not to say that he's been bad and he's been banged up throughout his post and the bubble thing, that whole situation was weird where he was the whole thing before the bubble. So, I mean, I I look at it from his perspective. He's got the big contract. He's probably going to finish second in the Hart Trophy race. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I mean, he's got to be pretty high up in terms of the voting, but just what a deep postseason run would be for him where he's a dominant player. Yeah, that that's right. And that's what for him trying to become a superstar, trying to be in the same breath as Ovechkin and Crosby and be that next generation with I mean McDavid doesn't have to win a cup and he's always going to be there, but but the other special players in the league, the Kucherovs and I think David recognizes that at the end of the day you have to win and and if he wants to be a Hall of Famer, he's probably got to win one of these even if he scores 800 goals and and that'll be so for him, this is his best chance. And, and all of these guys, they all yeah. know, like they were talking, I was talking to somebody the other day talking about, you know, how much it would mean for Nick Felino to win a cup. And it's like, you know how much it would mean for anybody playing in the NHL today, what it would mean <laughs> to win a cup. I don't care if you've got three of them or four of them, what it means to win the cup in two months for everybody. And and again, Patri- David's another guy who recognizes that, understands that. And I think if he he can put his name in the rafters as a Bruin as well with a with 20 goals or 15 goals in the playoff. And like you said, go on a run and really be a leader for this group. It, it changes the, 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 the perspective that everyone has of you. Okay, so... I'm looking at just how deep this Bruins team has been this season. And if I'm crazy here, tell me I'm wrong and I'm just an idiot for saying this. But I'm looking back through the past couple of playoff runs for the Bruins. And we all know, like, the whole theme was, hey, if you shut down the perfection line, the Bruins can be in trouble. And you go back to last year, Bergeron and Marchand on the ice on five and five. They're even on the road. 
if you go when they're at home, they outscore the opponent four to one. Back to two years ago, home, Marshawn and Bergeron four to one. On the road, Bergeron four three, Marshawn five three in terms of their on ice time. So obviously when you're on the road, you don't have the luxury of having the last change. And if you look at it this year, Pasternak's mainly been playing, of course, on that check line that's been really good with Krejci and with Zaka. So is this team more equipped in terms of dealing with some of the struggles they've had in the past because of the depth? Like, are we not going to see? Because this year, when you have to make a choice, Razor, like what what your shutdown line, if you're playing the Bruins, are you what line are you putting it against? Do you want to match it up against the Bergeron line? Do you want to march, match it up against the Krejci line? Like, is that more of a decision now than it's ever been in the past? Oh, no question. No question. And and just as much as the four line, what deep pairing are you going to put? More and no one has the luxury the Bruins have of having three guys that are number ones. You have two, some teams, but even then, you know, you're looking at a Hedman and a Sergachev, and those guys get mixed and matched. So there's no question the Bruins' depth is is what's going to separate them or what should separate them here in the playoffs. And and you really have to pick your poison when you're in the garden. And I don't think the Bruins have matched too much at home, but when they do in the playoffs, it's even going to be more startling how how much their depth is important and and who they choose to put Charlie Coyle with and can can he negate you know their top line and then you're really playing with fire at that point. So it'll be I, I do believe that and and it, it's we have not heard right we haven't heard all season all oh, they're they're one scoring team or yeah. that one line they're going to get shut down so. I think that just goes to to yes. What Carolina won't be able to just put stall on Bergeron and and have everything go their way this year, and, and that's so important come playoff time. And I, I'm excited to to watch the games and just see how teams match up and how the Bruins decide to put their defense together and how they put their forwards and who they're up against. It'll be it'll be a really cool chess match just because the Bruins have so many options this season. Well, and I'm glad that you mentioned Coyle in there because it's fascinating to me. The first person I saw write something on this was Connor Ryan from The Globe. And he talked about this. I talked with him about it probably a month ago here on the podcast. But the percentage of faceoffs that have come in the offensive zone with Coyle on the ice on five on five, it's 34.2%. That is 211th out of 218 forwards with a minimum of 800 minutes of ice time. Okay. But how about this? The goals percentage is 60.8%, which ranks 22nd of 218 forwards. Like it doesn't add up, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. if you look at it, the Bruins have outscored their opponents 48 to 31 with Coyle on the ice and just 182 of the faceoffs have come in the offensive zone, the 13th fewest. So speaking of like that whole idea of the matchups and look, Coyle meant a lot to this team in the run in 19 with some timely goal scoring. But just in terms of what the Bruins can do in terms of what Montgomery can do, matching him up with the opponent's top line. How important is Coyle going to be to this run? Well, I think, and to that point, I I think they've been able to do that. And, and Coyle and Nosekev had taken so much of the load off Patrice Bergeron. And, and that was the idea going into this season. Get Keep Patrice, keep Brad as healthy, as, as rested, as energized as you possibly can. Now, playoff time, I can see those numbers going opposite directions. I can see Coyle being... Off, more offensive zone faceoffs. Hmm. If the Bergeron line dictates them, if if the Zaka line dictates them, and you can put Coil out there against a fourth line every once in a while, I could see that switching a little bit more, and not just relying on Coil to be that. Depending on matchups, and 
that I think it was uh, it was a point of emphasis come regular season. I think we can definitely see Patrice taking more faceoffs in the defensive zone. I think that should be expected because of how right. good he is defensively, and maybe at least as good as if maybe a little better than Qual just because he wins more draws, but not not defensively. There's not much difference, and uh, those numbers spit that out. How much Charlie Coyle's meant to everyone else's success, and I, I think those guys are the ones that usually take a bump come playoff time. And whether it's Bertuzzi and Frederick or Paul or Feline, whatever that line combination ends up, I can see them banging in a few more goals than expected just because they might get some better opportunities depending on matchups. Well, and it makes a lot of sense too what you said about just like resting Bergeron, right? Not just like when he gets games off, but in-game getting rest uh-huh. throughout the season, which that's been huge from Coyle's perspective. Uh, but the other thing is just on coil. Um, so as a former goalie raiser, what would you rather face in terms of the shootout? The coil approach where it's just kind of slow, methodical. And then like the other day on Sunday against the Blues, he just kind of eventually finds the five hole with Bennington or DeBrusque where DeBrusque is just coming in with incredible speed. Which one is easier for you to figure out? Uh, it, it depends. It really does. Usually I like the guy going fast, um, but DeBrusque has two pretty good options. Because usually if the guy's going really fast, he's got one option. Or you can take away half of an option to only give him one and a half options. DeBrus does a good job at full speed with the two options. I know he missed the hit the crossbar in, in St. Louis, but he's got that little flip or he rips it low gloves. So he has those two options that look exactly the same. Now with Coyle, he's got that high glove going and you saw Biddington cheat high glove the other day and Coyle just waits for the cheat and then he goes five hole. So Usually, it's easier to discourage a goal a player if he's going really quickly, unless he's really locked in. And, and again, so I would, I would, I would rather the coil or rather the debrust than the coil at, at this point. And and I think we see it with the Kuznetsov in Washington how slow he goes. It's really hard. It's like really if the guy gets it and he knows what he's doing, he goes that <laughs> slow. He makes you look like an idiot. Yeah, although I get a. I mean, obviously, I never played goalie in the NHL, but it's got to be pretty intimidating with how fast DeBrusque is coming at you. I mean, that guy, he absolutely flies. <laughs> yeah, and it's so noticeable because no one else goes fast on them. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like in hyper mode and he's already a fast skater as well. So it does look funny. And, and uh, he again, that that little high chip he does at full speed is pretty impressive. All right, so Olmark obviously is going to win the Vesna. Swayman's had a great season as well. So I know this is a debate. You've had to answer these questions a bit, Razor, this season. But so we really haven't seen in the postseason goalie platoons unless it's like, okay, the Penguins, their last cup that they won, they bench Flurry for Murray. Same thing happened like in 2008 where Dominic Hasek got benched. So it really doesn't happen that way, right? Unless it's it's only for an injury or it's a guy's just playing so poorly. So is there any chance, which with how well this goalie rotation has worked out, is there any chance they do it in the postseason where even after it's a after a win where you're up 2-0 in the series, Olmark is playing well, is there any chance they would do that? Or is that just completely crazy? Because this has now become a, d- a debate here locally. And I know you you know because people have been probably asking you about it. Yeah, it's completely crazy. There's no, there's no way. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It, yeah. it, it, the rhythm, the whole thing. Now, that doesn't mean that Allmark is on a Vasilevsky leash where no matter what happens, it's Allmark next game. Now, that that can change within a series. And, and you could ping pong through that, you know, through someone struggling or 
someone getting banged up a little bit, someone giving a better opportunity to win the next game. But no, it's not going to be Linus wins game one on the garden and you're going to see Swam and roll out their game two. That it just it's too difficult and there's just too much too much mental wear and tear to to try and make that happen cuz you you get if it works a couple times and then you get out of decision making and the team and the whole it just becomes something that that you just don't need come playoff time. Linus Allmark's the Vesna trophy winner. He's been amazing. He gets uh he gets to to run with it to begin with. Well, Razor, I just hope are you ready for the postseason when you're doing interviews or you're on social media and one bad game from Olmark, you're getting hit oh, up. Like, wait. are you ready for uh, this? Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. Yeah, it's and it's coming. You know it's coming. I, I the probably like they're probably not gonna sweep the first round, right? Like, even if they're gonna like they're really, really, really good, they probably don't sweep the first round. I know they're not gonna win 16 in a row. And and yes, I can't wait for the oh, they should have pulled. They should have played Swayman. They should have. They should have him in next game. And uh, that's that's what I think is the, the the coaching staff always wants to to separate themselves from that that debate. Well, I know this from somebody that formerly worked in sports talk radio. That's the lead. Like the next day after they <laughs> yeah. lose, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Between that and Pasternak sucks. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. <laughs> those are the leads. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, I can't wait. Okay, so Dmitry Orlov. Since he's come over, they've really mixed his five on five minutes. Most, of course, have been with McAvoy. And obviously, anybody with McAvoy and Orlov's a really good player. The numbers are really, really good when they're on the ice mm-hmm. together. His numbers have actually been really good with Clifton as well when they're on the ice together, even on five on five. So and I know a lot's going to depend on injury. You're still looking to see when Forbert's going to be back, et cetera. But who do you think he has played the best with? Obviously, that answer would be McAvoy. But how do you think they end up? Does it depend on the matchup? How, how do they figure out these deep pairings for the postseason. No, I'm fascinated by it. I, I um, it is It's so matchup based. And that's the beauty of this group that they, they haven't had where you, again, you had to, you had the perfection line. You had to roll out the perfection line because other lines couldn't score or all the different reasons. But this year, as much as the, the, the forwards are interesting, the back ends fascinating to me. Do you, do you essentially have, McAvoy, Lindholm, and Orlov, one of those guys on the ice the entire playoffs. Hmm. You could, if you separate the three of them, one of those guys is on the ice the entire game of the entire series. What a luxury that is. Um, Do they do that? Or do they keep McAvoy and Orlov and run those guys 25 minutes and then Lindholm, Carlo, 22 minutes and then spot the other guys 15, 17 minutes? So it, they can do it a bunch of different ways, but I, I'm I'm intrigued because of Orlov's ability to play with everybody and left side, right side, what they do. Uh, I, I, I it's another question mark. We're not going to know until game one, maybe even game two, game three, when we really get a sense of what they do. But it, again, it's so matchup based. Maybe at home you don't do that, but maybe on the road you do decide to put those guys on the ice the entire sixty minutes. And you just roll the D over knowing you have a shutdown guy on all three pairings. It's what a luxury. It's crazy. It really yeah. is. I was going to say it's a good problem to have. <laughs> right? oh, I mean, it sure is. They, I mean, we're talking sure about the is. forward line with the D line is deep as well, especially after the deadline. Pick it up Orlov. All right. So Montgomery last week pushed back against that TSN report that, hey, Taylor Hall's actually ready to play, but they're just not cap compliant. But to me, like the whole thing, it kind of smelt from the beginning because it's like, well, couldn't they just put Felino on long term IR or somebody else on long term IR, right? And then 
activate Hall. Like there could have been a way to do that, right? In terms of just the salary cap playing around with it, et cetera. But because I would think that you would want to see Hall on the ice playing with Coyle again. And then because, of course, Bertuzzi's now on the team and Hall was hurt when they've never played in the same game, obviously, because Bertuzzi came over after the Hall injury at the trading deadline. So first of all, on the report, do you buy into that at all? And secondarily, how are you feeling about Hall? Do you think it is actually going to be a situation where he comes back for the postseason when you don't have to be cap compliant? Well, the, with the report, so the report's one of two things. One, Daring got his information from the Hall camp, meaning, you know, Hall's an Ontario guy. His agents are in Toronto. Hmm. You, get, you either get it from that side. Or you get it from the Toronto Maple Leaf GM, people in the offices <laughs> of other NHL teams saying, hey, what are the Bruins up to here? So it, it, I think that that report, the source is very important, what you believe. But but for me, I, I, I don't it doesn't make sense to just sit him out for the exact reason you said. And this is why I think this report's coming just to cause a little chaos for the Bruins and in Canada is that. Why would you not want Hall in the lineup right now if he's ready to go? And you now Forbert's injured too, so you can do long term with him as well if you, you want to mix the numbers around. I don't know exactly what the math is, but what I do know is I'd want Taylor Hall in the lineup to see. To your point, is he playing the left side? Is Bertuzzi going on the right side of that third line? Is Hall playing right. the left wing on the fourth line? Where does he where does he fit, and how does he fit with the other guys, especially Bertuzzi and Hathaway? now in the lineup and then not for, forget Felino at some point as well. So I would like both of those guys in the lineup. If you're playing them game one of the Stanley cup playoffs, I would like them to play a couple games before they get to that point. So it'll be interesting to see over the next five games when hall, if hall checks back into the lineup and then where he does and how that looks. Yeah. And I meant forward in terms of another guy you could put on long-term IR and then activate Paul, but I mean, what a luxury if they if he comes back too to have that third line of Coil, Bertuzzi, and Taylor all in one it's arm. Nuts. Yeah, it's, it's great. Nuts, it's, it's crazy it's to think about. Absolutely nuts. It really is. All right. So one problem the Bruins have had, and I know you guys have talked about this on Nesson, and I saw Scott McLaughlin who put it out there that they were 31st in the NHL in the power play for basically 27 games. Now, last two games they scored in the power play Sunday against St. Louis, Pasta with that feed to Bertuzzi. And then going back to Saturday, two of three against Pittsburgh, McAvoy. Oh, on that ridiculous pass by Zaka where he jumped yeah, up sick. in the air. I mean, he's I mean, that guy's had a great season, too. But and then later on, Pasternak a goal on the power play as well. So you guys talked about, especially during that Nashville game, where it was 0 of 5. And I think Columbus, it was 1 of 5 when it was really starting to become an issue for this team. So what did you see in terms of the issues they had in the power play? And did the weekend make you feel better about that unit? Uh, that unit for sure. I, I and we've felt okay with that unit. The entries have been so bad. That they, it's all about the entries for both units. And mm -hmm. with Patrice, uh, Billy Jaffe had the numbers. The the face off the first half was percentage was sixty four. Dropped down to fifty seven percent in the second half when the power play was struggling. And and that goes directly to puck possession. And I think that power play was being sustained by that face off win. Because the entries haven't been great all season from that first unit, and and they've gotten worse, and, and that's been the big problem for them getting set up and, and getting sustained pressure. The second unit has been better at it, and I think they they punched through a little bit over the weekend, and you have to feel a lot better with with how they're moving it. Um, 
I, I said I wouldn't be concerned until this lot, this, you know, kind of now. Um, they still have five games to sort it a little bit. And then it's all about game one and the matchup and what, what really works. It, it, the power play is one of those things where it really depends on who you're playing. And if they get the right matchup and the right plays and the right setup against Florida, the Islanders or Pittsburgh, that can change real quickly with a good first game. But all in all, I am a little concerned because it's something that you can't go. You can't go in the Tampa game. You can't play Tampa 0 for 4 and give up a shorthanded goal in the first first period. I mean, that kills you in the playoffs and they have to be a little concerned and they have to be worried about what it actually looks like. Yeah, hopefully they get it together because I remember in 2011, that was the storyline with this team. It's like they were like one of the worst teams ever on the power play to win the Stanley Cup. It was remarkable they got through. All right, Razor, a couple of rapid fires here before we let you go. So speaking of those matchups, first round matchup you would like the Bees to get the most. We saw Pittsburgh Saturday. I mean, the Islanders still dealing with the injury to Barzell. We'll see when he comes back. Florida's right there as well. So out of those three, who would you prefer to see in that first round? Pittsburgh. I don't, I don't think their back end's very good, and their goaltending's really dicey, especially out of the three. I think Bobrovsky, Sorokin are much better than what the Penguins have. All right, even how- with Sid and Malkin, who I didn't think I'd ever say that, but but they're the they're the best matchup of those three. Okay, so Pittsburgh there. How about the second round? Now, of course, Tampa's been that team for so long. They have Vasilevsky. Toronto's obviously a loaded team as well. And if they get healthier as we get closer to the postseason, I mean. I didn't think at the beginning of the year this would be a decision when the Bruins were so good, but Toronto's had a nice season, and the Bruins will see them on Thursday, of course. But who would you prefer there? The second round's going to be tough because you're going to get one of two things. You're going to get a Toronto Maple Leaf team that finally got over the hump 18 years. The city is going to be going absolutely nuts. The country's going to be going nuts. The Leafs finally won a first-round matchup. They're going to be playing with house money at that point rather than what you've seen them completely nervous and scared to lose the first round, or you're getting a Tampa team that says, uh, we know how to win. We've won this conference three years in a row. We have the best goaltender. We have the best defenseman. We have one of the best forwards in the world and good luck trying to beat us. Cause we're deciding to play now. So the, there's no question. The Bruins are the favorite in the second round. I still, I feel like, Toronto can be dangerous, but I'm not picking Vasilevsky. So I'll take Toronto if you're asking me, but I do think they could be dangerous if they get going into the second round. I'm with you. Tampa just scares the shit out of me just because they've been there so many times at this point. All right. So then I'm guessing you're not going to go. I think last time we talked, you said not that you weren't as concerned about the Devils just because they're a young team. So if they get to the conference finals, the Rangers with that loaded team after what they added to trading deadline. I mean, it's unbelievable. They have Tarasenko, they have Kane. And then, of course, you look at Carolina, who the Bruins beat what last week, but Carolina has given them trouble. We saw what happened in the postseason a year ago. So out of that group from the Metropolitan, who would you least like to see? Or who do you want to see, <laughs> and, I should say? Well, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, listen, I think I, I was leaning on. New Jersey's impressed me a lot more than last time I talked because they they okay. fought through like they keep winning and they keep doing it and and they're sticking around. I still they're not second taking in differential. Them. They're second yeah, in differential. No, yeah, they, they're legit. Like they I, I they struggled at times and they fought through that adversity and they've just been sneaky and I, I they're gonna have home ice by the you know there's a very good chance they have home ice against the Rangers. Um, I, I'm not taking them per se, but. I, and I, out of those three, I would rather see New Jersey than Carolina and New York. I think it's just easier to pick them because of what the Bruins can can slow them down and negate that a little. 
I'm not sure on the other two. I, I, I love Shesterkin. Does New York play a disciplined enough game? Their power play is scary, but that can go dry over four or five games, especially when you have the best PK unit. So, but the Carolina Hurricanes don't have Svechnikov, and that's that's a big loss. Mm-hmm. So you know what? I'll lean I'll lean the Rangers as being the most difficult, uh, as much as that is the absolute wet dream for the NHL to have the Bruins and the New York Rangers in the conference finals. Oh, that would be unbelievable. And the first matchup, that's like sort of when New York was still getting together. Like that was what a month ago now. It was a yeah. Saturday afternoon game, and the Bruins obviously had their number. There was a great. It was an entertaining game to watch. All right, so. How about any of the records? Do they get the wins record or the points record? Yeah, they get the wins record. I, I, I'm a little surprised because, again, two weekends ago when they had Tampa and Carolina and I knew they were resting guys, I didn't. I thought they were going to find a couple losses in here that, that would have derailed them, and, and they only took the one against Nashville. So, yeah, they're going to go three of two here. Um, I don't know what. It, they probably beat Toronto Thursday and then split and then win one of the other two. Um, I love it, man. Red- I'm like... Are you at the point where you want to see it now? Like I know everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're going to go three and two. Now, if they had to run the table five and all, who cares? But yeah. no, you're this close. Like yeah. you're this close <laughs> to be able to be the best team in the regular in the history of the regular season. And the other thing is with this record, right? It's just like the NBA. The math gets to a point where no one can ever beat you. Yeah. Like, like you get 74 wins and then you get 75 wins in the NBA. Like you can't, it's actually physically impossible to not lose less than six. This is almost where the Bruins, like 63. How does someone get to 65 wins after what the Bruins have done this year? I don't know. So, so yeah, try and win four of these games, get to 64 and say, come and get like, that might not ever happen ever again. And if you have that ability to do that, you got to go for it. And despite sitting guys out in Philadelphia on Sunday. Yeah, it's nuts. All right. And Razor, before I let you go, you got to help me like solve this problem with a couple of of my buddies, this debate. So as a former goalie, like I'm going from like the late 80s on when Wah actually, you know, played for Montreal in the 1980s. And then, you know, when I grew up, he was dominating his badass for the Avalanche. You had Dominic Hasek at that time, won six Vesnas. Now Wah has the advantage in terms of the con Smice. And then you had Marty Brodeur that it was a great winner. But the one critique on Brodeur is just like that defensive style, right? That the Devils mm-hmm. played. It was a very boring team to watch. So if you had to pick one of those three guys, or how about just rank those three guys? Patrick was number one for me. Number, number one. Uh, I, was, okay. I was a huge Canadian. Like Patrick yeah. is my guy. There's no, there's no really even like, it's not close for me. It's just Patrick Four Stanley cups, <laughs> cons, my trophies, 86, 93. I mean that it's him. It's him and no one else. But, um, Marty's longevity puts him, Dominic Hasek, those seasons he had, no one was better in those seasons. Like the single season Buffalo Sabre he had, that's, that is like all time single season, but career wise, I put Marty ahead. And, and also cause all the guys that you talk to in those eras, like you, you talk to JR, you talk to all those hall of famers. They say Marty Brodeur a lot of times, like Marty was in all of those guys head cause of how big and strong he was. So I'll go Marty to Dominic second, but uh, again, those two guys are pretty close, though, the, in my rankings. But Patrick is Patrick's more of a childhood thing for me. 
I got you. Yeah. I mean, I just remember growing up in the 90s, like with Hasek, it was he was just like those guys are both entertainers, right? Like from the goaltender yeah. position, like Hasek's coming way out of the net. Like it was the things that that guy was doing were insane. And then with Wah, he was just a badass. Like that yeah. whole thing with the Red Wings, he always wanted oh. to fight guys like he was out of his mind. Yeah, he was so, the ultra competitive, crazy man who who would kill to win one game. And, and that was the, his fierceness was always amazing. And like the, the way Hasek played, I think, is is aging really well. At the time, it was always oh, lucky oh, things hit him. But you, you really see now if we had all the science and all the ideas that goaltending has now and what he did and how he created to fill space was was pretty special all right well i'm gonna go youtube dominic hasek now because those highlights are unreal yeah you you watch <laughs> that now and, and like just instead of thinking about how he's all out of position actually think about like where his glove is and how he like has it up and over the puck and he thought about trajectory and all these things he was ahead of his time scientist yeah, unbelievable. And a very entertaining uh, era of hockey with that whole rivalry with the Red Wings and the Avalanche oh, as well. Best. That is Andrew Raycroft from Nesson. Razor, enjoy the stretch run. I'm with you. I hope they get the record and enjoy the start of the postseason, man. Cannot wait. Me too. Cannot wait. Springtime, it's the best. So thanks for having me on. We'll talk soon. All right, great stuff there from my buddy Andrew Raycroft. Cannot wait for the postseason to get underway for the Bruins. Uh, just one note on the Red Sox as they lose to the Pirates, and now they've lost this series to the Pirates two games to three. They need to win on Wednesday afternoon just to avoid a sweep to the Pittsburgh Pirates. So if you look at it, Pavetta is the last guy to get his turn in the rotation, and same issues we've seen throughout his career. 45.4% hard hit rate last season, which is balls off the bat 95+. plus. That was 121st of 124 starters with a minimum of 100 innings. Tonight, 10 hard hit balls. So 10 <laughs> balls came off the bat 95 plus miles an hour. That's a 76.9% hard hit rate. He was also barreled up four times, 30.8%. And when I say barreled up, just so you all know what I'm referencing, it's a ball that basically it requires an exit velocity of 98 miles an hour. And at the exit velocity, the launch angle between 26 and 30 degrees, that's always going to be in the barreled classification. If it's over 98 miles per hour, or I should say if it's at 98 and the launch angle is between 26 and 30 because it's just getting in the air, right? And for every mile per hour north of 98, the range goes up. So if it's 99, the launch angle is 25 to 31 degrees. If it's off the bat at 100, it's 24 to 33 degrees. So basically, everything that was coming off the bat tonight for the Pirates were absolute rockets and they were all getting barreled up that's why you saw some of the damage you look at Pavetta last year 9.4 percent walk rate which was 110th of those 124 starters that we mentioned tonight three walks 22 batters 13.6 percent would have been last among starters last year he had 73 total walks last year 123rd also if you look at him eighth highest meatball percentage last year and <laughs> We saw that again in this one tonight. Basically, that just means pitches that are middle-middle, right? Meatballs, pitches that are middle-middle. And if you look at, say, for example, a guy like Martin Perez, who had a great season last year, our old friend with the Rangers, he doesn't have great stuff, but he was second best in terms of not throwing pitches middle-middle. Nick Pavetta had the eighth highest rating. Pavetta's stuff is not good enough to do that, and we saw it again tonight. The other component is he doesn't get a lot of swings and misses, Last year, just a 10% swinging strike rate. That was 82nd of 124 
of those starters, so well below average. Tonight, 7%, a horrible number. So he has really bad misses that are easy to lay off because they're not tempting enough. He doesn't get a lot of chases, and he misses in the zone, and when he misses in the zone, they're meatballs. So basically, loud contact, walks, misses in the zone that are meatballs, and he's a fly ball pitcher too. Like, he doesn't get ground balls. He was 92nd of 124 pitches in ground ball rate. So you look at it tonight, Pavetta to Bay, four-seamer middle-middle, Again, one of those meatball pitches comes off the bat 102.1 miles an hour. See ya. Pavetta to Reynolds, curveball middle middle, 100.3 miles an hour off the bat. Meatball, hard hit barrel, home run. Reynolds, the double, four-seamer middle middle. Again, another meatball. He just got himself into so much trouble in this game. And they were lucky that it wasn't that bad for Nick Pavetta in terms of the results. Like this, based on the pitcher that we've seen over the past couple of years, like this tonight, five and dive, a couple of home runs, three runs. Like you take that and run with Pavetta and you hope your offense wins it. But it's just a reminder that he's a back into the rotation guy. But if you think about it, this first time through the rotation for the Red Sox, it's just been atrocious, right? I mean, outside of Hulk, none of these guys have thrown the ball well. And if you look at it, so it all adds up to this in terms of the loud contact, the barrels that this team's given up, 62 batted balls, 14 have been barreled up. That's 22.6%, so more than a fifth. Last year, Washington was last at 9.5% in terms of their starters. They've given up 34 hard-hit balls in terms of the starters, first time through the rotation. That's 54.8%. Kansas City was last last season at 43%. The Red Sox rotation has been at 34, or excuse me, at 54.8% to start this year. I mean, you look at it. Kluber, six hard-hit, 54.4%. Sales, 770%. Pavetta, as we mentioned, 76.9%, the 10. And Crawford, although not horrible, still pretty bad. Six hard hit, 42.9%. So I just look at it going forward. How can Crawford are guys that, from my perspective, are made more for the bullpen? Crawford more is a long guy. I believe how can be a high leverage guy. But Sale, Bayo, and Whitlock, those guys you're going to need a lot from in terms of those are your guys that have potential to be front end of the rotation guys. Kluber, we know what he is back in. We know what Pavetta is, is back in. So just a lot of eggs in the Bayo, Whitlock, and Sale basket going forward. Pavetta isn't a good starter. Crawford, as we mentioned, probably better in the bullpen. Same thing without. So the, with Houck rather. So the first time through, just really as discouraging as it can get from a starting rotation standpoint, because outside of the game on Tuesday, this Red Sox lineup has really been hitting the shit out of the ball. And right now they're sitting at two and three on the season and they've already lost a season series to the Pittsburgh Pirates, a series that you should win. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast and we'll chat in a couple of days.